How you guys doing? Okay. <laughs> well, we are in our last week of our summer in spiritual disciplines. Um, today, we are talking about the communal spiritual discipline of confession. So, for as exciting as last week was, this one's even more exciting. So, we're going to be in Daniel chapter 9. Daniel chapter 9. If you've got your Bible, open up there. Um, if you're not familiar with the books of the Old Testament, if you open up to the, just the middle of the Bible, you're going to find yourself in Psalms. Then start flipping to the right, you'll get to Daniel. So Daniel chapter 9 is where we're going to be. While you're turning there, let me say this. I think that being a confessional community is one of the most valuable things we can do as followers of Jesus to bear witness to his goodness and his truth in the world around us. So today, we're going to talk about something that is uncomfortable, and it will probably be uncomfortable for all of us for one reason or another. Honestly, it'll be uncomfortable for me preaching it for one reason or another. But I believe that as we become a confessional community, not just confessional individuals, but a confessional community, a corporate expression of the discipline of confession, then we bear witness to the gospel of Jesus, to the world around us. Sound good? All right, Daniel chapter nine. We're gonna start reading in verse one. In the first year of Darius, son of Xerxes, a Mede by descent, who was made ruler over the Babylonian kingdom, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood from the scriptures, according to the word of the Lord, given to Jeremiah the prophet, that the desolation of Jerusalem would last 70 years. So I turned to the Lord God, and pleaded with him in prayer, and in petition, in fasting, and in sackcloth and ashes, I, pause for a second, this is the last time the word I shows up in this passage. Let's keep, let's keep going. I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed. Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments, we have sinned and done wrong. We have been wicked and have rebelled. We have turned away from your commands and laws. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our ancestors, and to all the people of the land. Lord, you are righteous, but this day we are covered with shame. The people of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem and all Israel, both near and far in all the countries, where you have scattered us because of our unfaithfulness to you. We and our kings, our princes, and our ancestors are covered with shame, Lord, because we have sinned against you. The Lord our God is merciful and forgiving, even though we have rebelled against him. We have not obeyed the Lord our God or kept the laws he gave us through his servants, the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned away by refusing to obey you. Therefore, the curses and sworn judgments written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out on us because we have sinned against you. You have fulfilled the word spoken against us and against our rulers by bringing on us great disaster. Under the whole heaven, nothing has ever been done like what has been done to Jerusalem. Just as it is written in the law of Moses, all this disaster has come on us, yet we have not sought the favor of the Lord our God by turning from our sins and giving attention to your truth. The Lord did not hesitate to bring the disaster on us, for the Lord our God is righteous in everything he does, yet we have not obeyed him. Now the Lord our God who brought your people out of Egypt with a mighty hand and who made for yourself a name that endures to this day, we have sinned, we have done wrong. Lord, in keeping with all your righteous acts, turn away your anger and your wrath from Jerusalem, your city, your holy hill. 
Our sins and the iniquities of our ancestors have made Jerusalem and your people an object of scorn to all those around us. Now, our God, hear the prayers and petitions of your servant. For your sake, Lord, look with favor on your desolate sanctuary. Give ear, our God, and hear. Open your eyes and see the desolation of the city that bears your name. We do not make requests of you because we are righteous, but because of your great mercy. Lord, listen. Lord, forgive. Lord, hear and act. For your sake, my God, do not delay, because your city and your people bear your name. Let's pray. God, we love you. And we trust you. And today we ask that we would be aligned with your gospel and your truth. We ask, as we often do, that anything that's from me, that's my ideas, would be noticed so it can be rejected. But what is from you and faithful to your word, that it would stick in our minds and hearts so that we would become like you. Jesus, we are here for you. We want to be formed by you. And may the name of Jesus be the name that's echoing in our minds when we leave. We love you, Jesus. Amen. Have you ever been uh, driving and noticed a sound coming from your car that a car is not supposed to make? Anybody? Or maybe you felt like a clunk or a thump or something like that? Yeah, that is the worst, right? Because that is never cheap. Right, it is. Did you notice how expensive it is to be an adult? Have you noticed that? You remember back in eighth grade when like $40 meant you had a lot of money, right? You could like buy matching Fallout Boy t-shirts at Hot Topic with you and your girlfriend and go to cookout. Man, that was great. Now, everything's expensive. Um, it, <laughs> if I could confess something to you, when I, hear, uh, when I hear a weird noise coming from my car, my first reaction is not, I have got to get this taken care of to make sure my family and myself and the other drivers are safe. My first thought is this is going to be expensive and I can't afford to be safe right now. Um, Here's a correlated question. Have you ever been driving on the interstate and allegedly speeding and you noticed a cop on the side of the road so you slow down to the speed limit, right? You slowed down not because slowing down was safe, but because tickets are expensive, right? Yeah, or, or have you ever been driving on the interstate and you weren't driving the speed limit, you just were making sure you weren't the fastest person on the road? Have you ever done that? So that in the off chance the police officer pulls you over, you can be like, someone was worse than me, officer. Like, what are you doing, right? <laughs> now, this is not a sermon about speeding because I would allegedly have to change my driving a lot if uh, it were, but hear me out. I want to ask you a question. Imagine that speeding tickets went away. Imagine that speeding tickets went away, that you did not have to worry about how fast you were going, but that every time you went faster, you could see what percentage less safe you were driving. Like imagine you could see on your windshield that going 80 in a 70 is 20% less safe than going 70 in a 70. Do you think you would be less likely to speed if your motivation was not doing harm or being more safe instead of paying the price? Or how about this? What if you, for the rest of your life, never had to pay for a repair for your car? What if, I don't know, your rich uncle owned the mechanic shop and you could take your car in anytime and get anything fixed 
and the only thing it would cost you is a Saturday afternoon or a lunch break over work or something like that. That would I mean, it'd still be inconvenient. But the only thing you had to worry about was your car being safe to drive. And you didn't have to worry about how much it cost. Do you think you would be quicker to go get that noise checked out? I would. John Mark Comer, who's one of my favorite authors and Christian speakers, thinkers uh, today, talks often about the gravitational pulls of the culture around us. These things that are subtle and part of the world around us that we might not even notice that they're affecting us. Things like the sexual ethics of our culture, the materialism that's constant in our culture, the hyper-individualism or the constant busyness. All of these things are so common and normal in the world around us that we might not even notice the way we're being pulled by those things away from the way of Jesus. One of the gravitational pulls of our culture today is the, the desire to self-justify. Another way to say that would be the desire to not be wrong. The desire to not be the one who gets in trouble. The desire to not have to pay for the thing. Do you see what I mean? We are often motivated not so much by whether something is safe or good or healthy for us and for the world around us, we are motivated by not getting in trouble, by not being the wrong one. And we can imagine a couple of ways that this plays out in our lives. One of them is really what we talked about last week with individual confession. We talked last week about how as an individual, the practice of confession requires trust. It requires me to trust not just the person I'm confessing to that they're a safe person, but it requires me to trust the Lord when he calls something sin. And the personal desire for self-justification can be the personal desire to say, well, my thing isn't really wrong or my, my sins aren't really, and we desire to justify ourselves. But there's another way that this plays out in the world around us and in our own lives. And that is in the desire to differentiate ourselves from the sins of our culture. The desire to say, well, I'm not the one who did it, so why should I pay for it? I'm not the one who committed the sin, so why should I have to confess? Do you see what I mean? Our reaction to proposed to the idea of sin and harm in our culture is often not, we have got to eliminate the harm of sin. But our reaction is often, I didn't do it. I'm not in trouble. You need to go talk to somebody else. I'm not the one who did it. Do you see the difference between those two things? In order for us to live, before we get to the text today, there's, there's an assumption that we have to see that Daniel assumed, but that's core to our understanding of confession as a community, and it's core to our understanding of what sin is as followers of Jesus. And it's this concept. This is, if you're taking notes, I would highly encourage writing this down. It is impossible to sin in a vacuum. All sin is communal. There is no sin that only affects me. Because a sin in my mind 
affects my mindset and my mindset guides my actions. A sin between me and my computer or a sin between me and my bank account affects me and I, as God said in Genesis chapter one, and one of the dominion holders of the world around me, so what I do has ripple effects. What I think affects what I do, and what I do ripples into the world around me, whether I can see it or not. It is impossible to sin in a vacuum. All sin is communal, because all sin affects other people. Understand? And if all sin affects all people, then confession cannot only be an individual practice because confession must match the level of sin. The harm that has done must be confessed and acknowledged for it to be healed. You remember last week, we cut the lights off in the room, it was weird, and then we turned the lights on because only what can be seen can be dealt with, and confession is the process of turning the lights on. Now, if you're to look for a passage of scripture in which to discuss the communal confession of sin, or sin, confession of sin as a corporate discipline, it's hard to pick a place because it's kind of all over. If you go back into the laws of Leviticus, you actually find sacrificial instructions that are to lay the sins of the people onto the animal being sacrificed. If you look at the book of Isaiah in chapter 6, Isaiah says, I am a man of unclean lips and I come from a people of unclean lips. Those are just two examples, but it's common throughout, especially the Old Testament, but even into the New, for language around confession to be us, we, and our, not I or they and them. Does that make sense? Now, Daniel, in order for us to understand this, we've got to notice a couple things going on in the life of Daniel. First off, Daniel was writing in a time of exile. His people, the people of Israel, had been exiled from the land God had promised them because of sin. Now, it's important to note that God did not kick them out because they broke the rules once or twice, that over the course of generations, generations, because God is incredibly patient with us even in our sin. Over the course of generations, the people slowly compromised one after another over time until the life they were living looked nothing like the people they had been called to be, right? And, and the sins they were committing, once again, were not just breaking the rules. They were things that would, if we look at it, might make our stomach turn. Things like extremely sexual practices of, of pagan worship or child sacrifice or extreme corruption or people dying in the streets of poverty. And this is what happened that caused God to bring this punishment. Now, Daniel makes it clear this punishment was foretold a long time ago. It didn't surprise anyone. They knew what was coming. And this is another thing that's important to note about most of the punishment we see in the Old Testament, is that when God punishes, usually it is giving the people what they asked for. Because they rejected him in his ways, but he was their protector, so when they rejected him, he lifted his protection and sometimes even empowered their enemies to take over. He was their protector and he was giving them favor and causing them to flourish in the land and they rejected him. Now there's another thing that's important. This is not part of my sermon, but this is so important when we understand punishment in scripture because in our world today, and I think this is normal and it's right for us to read passages of scripture that are violent and have punishment and to wonder why that would be in there. There's something we've got to understand. The motivation of punishment is to disincentivize harm. A speeding ticket is designed to make it more inconvenient for you to speed than it is for you to drive safely. 
It's designed to disincentivize risk and harm. So when God brings punishment on his people, what he's saying is it could have gotten a lot worse and I'm, I want you to turn away from your sinful ways before it gets a lot worse. Do you see that? That's the idea of punishment. That's the motivation of punishment. So Daniel is writing in exile. His people have been kicked off of their land. They have been uh, overrun by their enemies and exiled. And Daniel reads the prophecies from the book of Jeremiah and he sees that in their exile, there was a promise of God to remove the harm. He sees that the harm does not have to continue. So his motivation by confession is that the harm can end and the punishment has already been meted out. Daniel sees that the punishment has already come and the harm doesn't have to last. That God will keep his promise to remove the results and the harm that was caused by their sin. Do you see that? Now this is what's important. This is the most important thing. If there is any person in the Bible that would have had the right to say, God, I didn't do it, so they need to confess, it was Daniel. The first chapter we see, the first part of Daniel's story is we see he was selected to be an advisor and basically a servant in the house of the evil king. And even while working directly for the enemy king, Daniel remained faithful to God. In fact, he got sent to a lion's den over it. He broke the laws of the evil king to remain faithful to Yahweh. He consistently, constantly resisted the pressures of the world around him to remain faithful to the ways of God. And he, to the best of our knowledge in the story, did not compromise that. His life was consistent in faithfulness to God in the midst of the pressures of the world around him. If there was any person who could have said, I wasn't even alive when these sins were committed, it's not my fault, it was Daniel. If there was any person who could have said, you guys need to get yourselves in line because you're causing problems and God's punishing you for it, it could have been Daniel. But do you remember what I pointed out in the story? The last time we see the word I is when Daniel says, I prayed. There's another word that's missing in all of these verses, and it's the word they. Daniel never once says, they sinned, even though they did. Daniel never once says, it was their fault, even though it was. Daniel had every right to say, I wasn't there, I didn't do it. But do you hear what he said? He said, we have sinned, we have fallen short, we have brought shame on your name. Our people, our leaders, our sins. Daniel confessed on behalf of his people, acknowledging sins that he did not even directly commit to bring about the healing of the Lord. Why? Because he knew that the punishment had already been brought the punishment had already come. Healing is what was left. 
He knew that the harm didn't have to last. He was looking at his people in exile and he was looking at the harmful repercussions of sin and he was saying this has to be dealt with so that we can experience the goodness and the promises of the Lord. So he confessed on behalf of his people because he was not worried about self-justification. Now listen, this is what I have to tell you this morning. The punishment for our sin has already been dealt with on the cross of Jesus. You do not have to self-justify, nor do I. One more time. If you are a follower of Jesus, living with faith in his death and resurrection, you do not have to self-justify because your sin was paid for on the cross of Jesus. So our posture towards sin has nothing to do with self-justification or blame because guilt has been taken away. Our posture towards sin is sin does harm in the world around us, so we should desire to remove it from our lives and to remove the effects of it from the world around us. So our posture should not be as followers of Jesus. I didn't do it. Our posture as followers of Jesus should be, if it happened, we have to deal with it. Do you see this? Because we don't have to worry about the guilt anymore. But we live in a world where one of the primary gravitational pulls of our culture is self-justification. I didn't do it. I'm not in trouble. Don't blame me for that. Can I just be really direct and deal with the elephant in the room? Is that okay? All right. So this is where things get uncomfortable. One of the things that blows my mind, and that I say this as a confession for myself, because I'm as prone to this as anyone, is the, the way we as Christians have responded to issues of race in our country. Because in general, our response as followers of Jesus has been, I didn't do it. Are you calling me a racist? I'm not a racist. Because we don't want to get in trouble for it. Even though trouble was taken care of on the cross, our posture has not been, if it happened, and if there is harm being done, we have to take care of it. Our posture has been, I wasn't even alive. I didn't vote for Jim Crow. We have seen movements fighting for justice. We've seen things like the Me Too movement. We've seen um, evidences of people being harmed and our reaction has been, I didn't do it. Instead of, if it happened, we have to deal with it. Our reaction has been self-justification. And listen, hear me say this. I am not making a statement in alignment with any sort of political movement or party. I am not telling you how to vote here because I'm not telling you we have to even agree with whatever thing is brought up. But I'm telling you that if we are to be faithful to the posture of scripture, then our reaction when someone brings up harm and sin should at least be curiosity to see if it's true instead of defensiveness to make sure we don't get blamed for it. Our posture should be if there is still racial harm being done, 
if women are still being mistreated, if this group of people is receiving harm and the church is accommodating it or allowing it or being passive in dealing with it, then we should respond in faithfulness to the way of Jesus to remove harm because our foundational concept of sin is that all sin is communal and that all sin is harm. Sin isn't some ambiguous list of rules that God made for the game. Sin is things that do harm to the world around us. So we should be people who say, if there's harm being done in the world, if it's true, tell me so I can confess it because I don't want to have anything to do with that sin anymore. I want that sin gone. I want the harm gone. Do you see the difference? Do you see the difference? Because when we live in confession, when we as Christians are people who are willing to say, wow, if that's true, then we've got to deal with that. When our reaction to some sort of accusation or some sort of, some, some revelation of potential sin, when our reaction is, if that's true, we have to deal with it. We have to find out if that's true. Then what we tell the world is that we're not afraid of guilt because guilt was taken care of on the cross, but we are committed to justice because justice is the way of Jesus. Amen? We are committed to seeing the effects of sin, the harm of sin uprooted from the world around us. Confession is a communal, it's a corporate discipline in which whether we directly committed the act or not, we acknowledge that it exists and we take responsibility for it as a community, as participants in the community. Because here's the thing, if my primary concern is whether or not I committed the act, I, let's say this rug is the boundary, if, I, if, I, if my primary concern is not stepping out of line, then I might know I didn't technically cross the line, but what I don't see is the way I've been pulled around by the gravitational force of society. I might see that I didn't cross the line, but I won't notice whether or not I accommodated someone else crossing it. You see the difference? Confession should be a joyful moment. And I say this knowing how ridiculous that sounds. But for us as followers of Jesus, the invitation to confession should be an invitation to acknowledge the truth that the harm in the world, something can be done about it. That's not to say we will eliminate sin or we will live a perfect life. No, that, that's not going to happen. But that we don't have to just tolerate the harm. That we don't have to just be comfortable with things as they are but we can act to, as Jesus prayed, as N.T. Wright says, when Jesus prayed, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, he wasn't tricking us, but he invited us to pray it and then live it out as if it's true to the best of our abilities, as if his kingdom could actually come and his will actually be done here as it is there. It won't be done perfectly, but we can sure chase it and pursue it to the best of our abilities. Now there's one more thing. Do you see how the communal process of confession eliminates the judgment and condemnation that's so common in our world right now? Because here's the thing, we all have sins or activities that are sinful that we love to hate. We all do. Conservative, liberal, young, old, high church, low church, we've all got certain things that we love to target that specific thing. 
and hate on that specific thing, whether it's racism or sexual activity outside of God's design of marriage or corporate greed or abortion or, I don't know, uh, consumerism. We all have our thing that that's the thing that we love to identify as the thing that's the problem in the world around us, right? We all have that thing. But do you see how taking Daniel's posture of confession changes that? Because I'm not saying, God, they're racist. I'm saying, God, we have such a hard time loving those who are different from us. God, we do not empathize well. God, we harbor hate when we should embrace empathy and love and forgiveness. You're saying, God, we are confused and seek fulfillment in a sexual encounter instead of an intimacy with you. God, we, do you see the difference? And an interesting thing happens when your posture goes from looking at where the line is to confessing the reality of our world and our participation in it is that it forces you to start to see the way you have done it too. Because when I start to say, God, we, we are driven by consuming and we hurt one another by, by consuming and fulfilling our needs based on what we have or don't have then I start to see that, I mean, I might not be the person that makes me mad, but man, I have, I have purchased things that I know were harmful to the world around me just because it made me feel better. <laughs> or we say, man, I might not be, I might not be counter-protesting against some sort of like racial justice, but man, I have such a hard time loving people who are different from me. I have such a hard time trusting people. I still lock my car doors when I see a specific type of person walk by, even though I don't think of myself as racist. Do you see? Do you see how the corporate process of confession, it eliminates my ability to say you, and it forces me to say we, and as I say we, it allows me to say, you know what, I do that too. And this becomes the witness to the world of the truth of Jesus. This becomes the witness to the world of the faithfulness and the forgiveness of Jesus because it allows us to have a posture that does not fear condemnation. When someone comes to us with an accusation, we don't respond in defensiveness because we know the price has been paid. We're not afraid of what this is gonna cost us. You see, we're not afraid of what it's gonna cost us. We just want to know if any harm has been done so that we can eliminate the harm so that we can see the goodness of Jesus become reality in the world around us. Once again, I'm not telling you what sort of political stances you should take, but I am saying that the gospel requires us to respond with trust in the forgiveness of Jesus and curiosity towards the reality of the world around us, that we might know if there actually is harm instead of defend ourselves against the blame of it. And in doing so, we will tell the world about a Jesus who has offered the same forgiveness to each one of us and invites us into the reality of his kingdom. Here's how we're going to respond today. We are going to participate in a communal confession. In a minute, Jack and Caroline are going to come up and we're going to close in worship. But this is going to be our prayer to close our service. There are going to be two slides and we are going to together recite, this might be kind of weird for some of us, but it's okay, to recite the prayer of confession from the Book of Common Prayer. 
that Christians have used all over the world for a few hundred years. We're going to engage in this together as a way of beginning the practice of acknowledging that sin is corporate. It's not just individual, but also acknowledging that we live in the joy of the mercy of Jesus and we do not have to accommodate the results of sin in the world. We can stand against it and do something about it. So I'm gonna ask you to stand with us and we are gonna do the really awkward thing where we all pray out loud together. And we're going to try our best to pray at the same time, but if we get the timing off, that's okay. So we will pray together on the count of three. One, two, three. Most merciful God, we confess that we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by what we have done and by what we have left undone. We have not loved you with our whole heart, We have not loved our neighbors as ourselves. We are truly sorry and we humbly repent. For the sake of your son, Jesus Christ, have mercy on us and forgive us that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. Jesus, we love you. We trust that you are the forgiver, the reconciler, that your kingdom is what we want to come and your will is what we would have done on earth as it is in heaven. Let us embody that and let us not fear the invitation of confession, but see the joy that comes when we acknowledge that the harm is here, but it doesn't have to last. We love you, Jesus. Amen.